Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Wednesday the 17th of April 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we finish our reading of Chapter 3, The Revolutionary Strategy with the Centre. We are joined by Lexi and Rosa of Swampside Chats. This week I have the new patron Alex Marquez to thank. If you too would like to help keep the episodes flowing, you can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, or about $1 an episode. I'm close to hitting 50 patrons, upon which time I'll produce an extra patron-only podcast every month. The last few patrons who sign up from now till then will receive an exclusive handmade commie badge as a bonus. So if that's your bag, just click on that there Patreon button. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel, and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. We have a small but uh, high quality grouping today to read it with us. We have, let's go first over to Rosa. Rosa, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Reading McNair. Reading McNair, that's what we like to hear. And also we have Alexi Dog Robot on the call. Alexi Dog Robot, how are you? Earth, Earth. Hey, what's up, Tom? What's up, Rosa? What's up, Internet? Glad to be here. It's Cold Lampin from Arizona, about to talk about revolutionary strategy. What did you say? Cold Lamping. Cold Lampin is a phrase I picked up from the, what is it, 1987 track, uh, Cold Lampin' with Flavor, one of the Flavor Flav solar tracks on a Public Enemy album. Uh, I think it's on, from A Nation of Millions, which would put it at 1989. What does it mean? It just means chilling. I'm just chilling, Tom. I'm just chilling in Arizona. Where I'm from, lamping means something quite different. Well, uh, la- <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's where it's what farmers do to try when they want to kill foxes. They put lamping? lamps. They put a lamp. Yeah, they put a lamp out in the field, and the fox will be attracted, and you stand behind the lamp, and they can't see you from behind the lamp, and then you shoot them. That's what lamping is. <laughs> where I come from. <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe I like it even more now, Tom. <laughs> yeah let's, let's do this let's crush some bourgeois states yeah let's lamp the bourgeois state here we go okay so last week we got halfway through this is chapter three from mike mcnair's revolutionary strategy book and this is talking about the rav- the revolutionary strategy of the center which is what mike mcnair calls what the kautsky et al in the spd did uh, and the second international is it the second international line? Is that accurate, Lexi? Yeah. In fact, on an interview on your show, Tom from Alpha to Omega, he basically admits to using Kautsky as a stand-in figure for the founders of the SPD, August Babel and Wilhelm Liebknecht. So it's a little more complicated even than just Kautsky, but that's the point. It's the ideological leadership of the SPD from its you know earliest decades. Last week we did the. The general gist of the strategy, which was the idea of patience slowly building up an organization and the self-emancipation of the majority. So today we're on to this section where he talks about the state. Will we have a go and rip into this? Maybe read the first little paragraph too. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll hit the first one then. What distinguished the center tendency from post-1917 communists most fundamentally was the belief that the working class could take over and use the existing state bureaucratic apparatus, a view most developed most clearly in Kautsky's Road to Power. This too had its roots in claims made by Marx and particularly Engels. So is that is that fair? Did, did Marx and Engels not repeatedly talk about smashing the goddamn state? Well, it's complicated. So... They did talk about smashing the state on the continent. There's a book by an author, Perry Anderson, called Lineages of the Absolutist State, where he makes something along the lines of the argument that Marx's conception of the state that needed to be smashed was a sort of feudal holdover state, whereas his notion of the bourgeois state is different than we might imagine because he sort of associates bourgeois states with the kind of contractual relations that you see in a constitutional government, 
maybe I, I'm not really sure what to say here, but he constantly is saying, well, yeah, maybe in like Holland or in like England or in the United States, there would be some way of doing this peacefully, of having a communist revolution and expropriation peacefully without having to smash the state. But on the continent, he's unequivocal. You, we have to break these governments. That's very yeah. different than how Marxists tend to think today. Yeah, it. I mean, Marxists now sort of tend to selectively read like sort of what he wrote about the Paris Commune and the Civil War in France as, you know, talking about all states when it's mostly about like absolutist states rather than bourgeois states. And Engels later on in writing about the United States talks about how like, you know, the sort of like land ownership that is more common in like the United States sort of made it hard to organize as like the communist movement in the United States or even just, you know, straightforwardly normal labor movement. And that the only way that it would like the United States would only begin to develop such a movement if like by the time like basically they run out of land to conquer that didn't really pan out. But the, there's reasons for it not panning out like that. And the land part is still functionally correct in my opinion but yeah it's sort of interesting to read because this is like a strong contrast between how like you know lenin portrays marx and Engels' opinion on the state and karl kotsky's opinion on the state and it seems to be more in line with what karl kotsky wrote rather than like say lenin later on Uh, let's can we read just a bit of this because i find well, I don't know whether if uh, McNair is selectively quoting here, but some of this seems to me quite contradictory about what Marx says. For example, let me let me just read these two paragraphs here. In the civil war in France, Marx had asserted precisely that the working class cannot simply lay hold state machinery and wield it for its own purposes and had proposed that the, the commune as a model of the future workers' regime. In the first draft, Indeed, Marx had characterized a commune by saying that this was, therefore, a revolution not against this or that legitimate constitutional republic or imperialist form of state power. It was a revolution against the state itself of this supernaturalist abortion of society, a resumption by the people for the people of its own social life. So that that seems to be kind of saying that we're not going to take over the goddamn state. We're going to, you know, destroy it. Right, but it's specifically right. talking about it in like that one situation in the Civil War in France. Read the next and... paragraph. Okay, you do it there. Re- read it there, Lexi, then. All right. In an April 1871 letter to Kogelman, Marx wrote, If you look at the last chapter of my 18th Brumaire, you'll find that I say that the next attempt of the French Revolution will be no longer as before to transfer the bureaucratic military machine from one hand to another, but to smash it. And this is essential for every real people's revolution on the continent. So those last three words, that's my focus. I think I misspoke a little bit about what the topic of lineages of the absolute estate is about. But the overall point here is that Marx, even towards the end of his life, but especially during the 1870s, even after he writes the Civil War in France, he is still quoted in saying that, you know, he thinks that there could be, in some places, a peaceful communist revolution. In, in kind of like my working memory, it's as late as like, like 1872 that Marx says, let's see, if I ha- let's see if I have a quote on hand, because it's something that shocks me every time. This is external to the book. There's some, the uh, La Liberté speech, it's September 8th. 1872. He says this, um, you know that the institutions, mores, and traditions of various countries must be taken into consideration. And if we do not deny that there are countries such as America, England, and if I are more familiar with your institutions, I would perhaps also add Holland, where workers can attain their goal by peaceful means. That being the case, we must also recognize the fact that in most countries on the continent of Europe, the lever of our revolution must be force. It is force to which we must someday appeal in order to erect the rule of labor. So this is after he writes the famous passages about smashing the state. So if, if it seems a bit inconsistent, 
it's because Marx has a bit of a strange position on this that can only be understood by looking to the random shit that he says around his big texts. It's more than any other thinker is, is adjudicated by these little quips that he gives in speeches here and there. So this is Marx as Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> well, if, if you think about it this way, is that Marx, for a lot of his intellectual life, not all of it, is working under situations where even the norms of what we would call, quote, bourgeois democracy, quote, you know, those that doesn't really fly. And there's a bunch of liberals who are too, like, you know, cucked by the <laughs> Juncker state or something, like too, too loyal to the aristocrats to actually install rule of the bourgeoisie in a, like, forceful, violent way. But he still sees the value for workers that that there would be something like, I, I don't want to put it in Stalinist terms, but it's basically something like a bourgeois stage of governance. And, and that without the, some kind of passage into that, there's not enough liberty for workers to be able to organize out in the open and get a democratic foothold. He definitely didn't anticipate that the development of bourgeois government could actually be like a good check against workers' institutions. That's not something you find in Marx. He imagines that the more democratic freedoms we get, the better off things are going to be for the proletariat. We should probably discuss if this ever actually sort of happened. Like, I mean, in general, you could probably just say no. There was no peaceful transition into dictatorship of the proletariat in history. And like the few attempts that you can find of it happening, like say, I, I would say Chile, Chile under a Allende. 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 Basically under his presidency, I, I would say like Chile was getting close to like sort of a peaceful transition because the stuff with CyberSynth would have included more, would go beyond like simple social democracy in terms of including workers' participation in the process of production. And, you know, it would eventually eliminate the capitalist class. CyberSynth would have included more worker working class participation to the point where there wouldn't be a capitalist class per se, and the levels of nationalization would be ever increasing. And, you could argue that it was heading towards a dictatorship of the proletariat peacefully until the military coup happened and Pinochet was installed. So that right there is sort of like a rebuff to any kind of peaceful transition into socialism being possible, sort of. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you have to accept that Chile is true dick prole to accept this argument, you know, like... That essentially, like, if there's an attempt by a rising class to install its own supremacy, that it will be put down by force. Another good analogy is to radical reconstruction after the Civil War in the United States. This is made by W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction in America. Very similar dynamic. There is pretty much the predecessor to fascism that ends up, you know, crushing this. Even a bunch of the Republicans that helped to defeat the South end up throwing in with the former slaveholding class to crush radical reconstruction. It, it seems surprising to me that, especially with what we've been reading lately a bit on kind of Marx's anti-politics, if we want to call it that, you know, this idea of thinking that politics is outside the social and it's a separate sphere that Marx would actually fall for this thinking. Well, that's oh, because can... anti-politics is like a shitty selective reading of Marx that isn't really coherent yet at the bare yeah, minimum. I'm, I'm just going to cut you off there and just say that outright <laughs> because that's well, why it doesn't make sense with what Marx actually Well, What anti-politics is doing is basically in light of some of the problems with Marx's like, you know, later reflections on the state that I think Engels makes some headway into, but he also has problems, that um, they try to do like a radical rereading of his more Hegelian phase, which it is an undertone that exists throughout his work entirely, but he's a bit more schematic about it when he's younger. You know, he's he's thinking much more in, in terms of like, you know, abstraction and these kind of bong rip theories. 
And I do wish Grant was on to defend their theory because I have the same kind of misgivings about it as a complete reading of Marx. But if you try to synthesize these two things, what you basically end up with is Marx has the naive hope that some kind of form of bourgeois alienation could replace the absolutist military apparatus and that somehow the proletariat in this weird mode of unfreedom could find a higher form of freedom. You know, and that's the, really the Hegelian rub that exists even under his later work. It seems like a very obvious thing to me that if a new class is going to come up, they're going to have to, in the end, have to fight for it, for, for primacy. It just seems nearly like a self-evident truth. Well, I suppose the thing is maybe Marx is saying that it's it's possible that you could do it in the UK, but it's not a given whereby he's saying, making the case that on the continent where they don't even have the bourgeois parliament, it's absolutely necessary to essentially have a violent revolution to abolish the existing class. Would that be a fair reading of Marx? On the continent. On the continent, but in the UK, you know, in the UK, he's saying it's a possible, it's a possibility you could have a peaceful, but it's not a given. Yes, I think that's fair. Yeah, I don't think he thinks peaceful revolution is inevitable anywhere. We make up our own ideas on what whether we think that's likely possible or not. It would seem unlikely, given history, that Marx had the right call on that. Do you want to take this one, Lexi, in uh, on authority? I, I want to read the thing right before it because it directly continues from what I was saying and kind of echoes my comments about anti-politics. So that stuff about smashing the state essential for every people's revolution on the continent. That was in the first flush of the revolutionary movement. Later in the aftermath of the commune, the Bakuninists, the anarchists, argued that the mass strike revolution was to abolish the state. In response to the uselessness of the Bakuninist line, Marx and in particular Engels, quote, bent the stick against it in a number of texts. Now, bent the stick, meaning, you know, exaggerated, in order to make their point. So let's see. In On Authority, 1872, Engels uses a series of arguments for the need for authority in modern cooperative production, but he explains them in a very unqualified way, which makes no distinction between the temporary subordination of one individual to another, which is unavoidable in collective decision-making, and the permanent division of labor between managers and grunts, which characterizes both capitalist and other class, and bureaucratic regimes. Engels' arguments in this respect were to be used both by Kautsky against the left communists and by Lenin in the 1918 through 21 process of the construction of the bureaucratic regime in Russia. This is a particular stage in Engels and Marx's sort of career. If you're following their pivots back and forth, they have to After 1848, you know, the the workers' movement is crushed. The liberals betray the proletariat and the socialist movement and the workers' movement go underground basically until the Paris Commune and that that era. There's a couple of uprisings as well that lead to the, sort of lead to an uptick that inspires them to try to start the first international. Well, they have to like go hard against the state after the Paris Commune, they have to kind of go hard against anarchists. And then what's going to be talked about later is then especially um, Marx, but also Engels towards the end of their lives are dealing with the, the Lasallians in in the SPD. They're dealing with like the, the right socialists, the people that are loyal to the czarist state, or at least want to make a compromise with people loyal to the czarist state, not czarist, Juncker, excuse me, to the Juncker state. So this is the German state. The German aristocratic regime. That sort of accounts for why they're so inconsistent. They're always in the middle of a polemic. And so if you take them without the polemic, it just seems like, well, what are they arguing against? Let's have a read here on what Engels said about the state in 1891, now that we have it in context. In reality, however, the state is nothing but a machine for the oppression of one class by another. And indeed, in the democratic republic, no less than in the monarchy. And at best an evil inherited by the proletariat after its victorious struggle for class supremacy, 
whose worst sides, the proletariat, just like the commune, cannot avoid having to lop off at the earliest possible moment until such time as a new generation reared in new and free social conditions will be able to throw the entire lumber of the state onto the scrap heap. Well, there's that's uh, Engels being a stagist. Yeah. And Marx, if you read the, the Gotha program, you'd have to think he was a stagist too, that it wasn't just going to be, we have the revolution and then it's communism the first thing in the next morning. Yeah, the question is, you know, when they're talking about smashing the state, which parts of the thing that we call the government do they mean? It becomes clear when you read a lot of radical literature around this era that people mean something slightly different by the state than just the kinds of governments across history. Although then there is a kind of theory that collapses all that stuff, but whatever. For a lot of people writing around this time, the state is like something like the modern militarist state or something. You know, this is a lot of it you would think would be like getting rid of the armed forces being structured the way they are and letting things being run by district or, you know, the army being democratic. You know, lots of these things that would change the nature of it so much that it wouldn't function in the same way at all. It would be hard to equate the two different types of states. Yeah, I think it was hard for Marx and Engels to believe that something like the United States would turn out with the kind of insane imperial apparatus that <laughs> that it currently has. The way Hal Draper explains it is what Marx means by the abolition of the state is sort of the abolition or abolition of like what essentially makes the state sort of like a brutal, that sort of thing, military apparatus, police, that kind of thing that like reinforces the state as a function as sort of like a means of like asserting class authority. And instead what remains is like the administrative functions of the state. So all the means by which, you know, society is managed through the, uh, the administrative apparatus of it. Yeah. The idea would be, yeah, let's put these social administrative functions in the hands of society. And let's get rid of, I actually always liked this term. It's the body of armed men that stand apart and against the proletariat, that stand apart and against the working class. It's not simply some kind of decent expression of the will of the people or what have you. You know, this is its own thing. It's kind of hard to actually imagine what it would mean to have social administration without this kind of stratum forming that reproduces like manual intellectual labor or something it's hard to imagine what this would be but that's the gist of it participatory economics motherfuckers paricon well (laughs) (laughs) no but you can imagine systems being built whereby people aren't the problem is not imagining and designing the systems i don't think so much as to how the hell you actually would even get to there i don't know there's a lot of thought experiments about this how do you create a new form of social administration that doesn't end up using a special body of armed men against the general population i don't know it's a real puzzle it's not something that is obvious and it's something we have to kind of argue for and that's sort of the whole reason that one of these theories that the marxist state theory exists you know and why marxists come to such incredibly different conclusions about the state well Oh, to be a Marxist just means to be anti-state. Bakunin was right. Let's just get rid of the state. Actually, to be a Marxist means let's just replace everything with the state. Let's replace every corporation with the state. Let's replace the family with the state. Let's replace the state with the state. Like every single position on the state is represented within Marxism. So Engels then, in his 1895 introduction to Marxist class struggles in France, he asserts, With the SPD's successful utilisation of universal suffrage, however, an entirely new method of proletarian struggle came into operation, and this method quickly took on a more tangible form. It was found that the state institutions in which the rule of the bourgeoisie is organised offer the working class still further levers to fight these very state institutions. The workers took part in elections to particular diets, to municipal councils and to trade courts, They contested with the bourgeoisie every post in the occupation of which a sufficient part of the proletariat had a say. 
And so it happened that the bourgeoisie and government came to be much more afraid of the legal than of the illegal action of the Workers' Party, of the results of elections than of those of rebellion. Okay, so this is Engels saying that the state became extremely afraid of parliamentary left organizing. It's kind of problematic, right? In a manner of speaking, if you don't have a special definition of state, right? He's basically claiming you can use, the working class can commandeer parts of the state against the bourgeoisie. Like if you're not restricting state to, you know, the bodies of armed men, and by state, you also mean these representative institutions, you know, the political institutions, then uh, this is challenging. And it seems to be a bit of a capitulation on Engels's part, although one that's in line with some of the things we were saying about Marx earlier. It should be known that the SPD popularized that essay as the tactics of social democracy, and it often censored the parts where Engels is still like, yeah, I'm still down for the rev. I'm still down for an insurrection. And, you know, we still got to, you know, do violent shit. But all I'm saying is that this is an admissible tactic as well. And maybe it might be even more effective. The the SPD censored this introduction and made it seem like Engels went full Bernstein. He set up this initial chapter as saying that, you know, Max and Engels were essentially mixed in their ideas of whether parliamentary reform could be revolutionary in its end or whether uh, you needed violence. So they seem to have been mixed and the SPD seem to have gone along the lines of we just should win everything that we can, all these democratic roles. But how does this how does this fit in though with the idea of non-coalitionism and non-taking power if they're actually getting involved in like local dog catchers uh, <laughs> votes because they're he's making that kind of point here isn't he he's saying here that like they did particular diets municipal councils trade courts uh, at what level does that become actually being part of the state yeah this is the danger of claiming that you can use the bourgeois representative institutions against the bourgeois state i'm going to call it that like I think there's a difference between these representative institutions and uh, the military apparatus, right? I think it's a hard sell, even if you make that kind of distinction. All I can say is that this never happened before. They didn't, they didn't see the rise and fall of this movement. Engels isn't writing in the year of our Lord 2019. He hadn't seen 1914. He didn't see that sort of stuff. It was plausible at that point in time. And this is why a lot of people went along with Bernstein, right? once Engels died, is that it was plausible that, look, we're just doing better and better. We, look, we used to be illegal. Now we're one of the biggest parties in the country. Um, let's just, just keep pushing people. And that kind of political inertia can be <laughs> addictive, you know? And yeah, for all the reasons you said, Tom. I mean, it's that kind of thing that has led some people to be like, well, to say that the state is just bodies of our men, I mean, that's so vulgar. Look at the way representative institutions draw people in. And then they'll say, yeah, but there are things funding those representative institutions. Look at the way those people funding those representative institutions reconstruct everything. And in some forms of Marxist theory, you just get these expanding circles where they sort of start putting everything into the state because everything sort of supports the way things are. They make it almost metaphysical. You're right, Tom, that this is the beginning of how people get subsumed into the state. But also, I would just throw a caveat that maybe some of these institutions could be used in a way to attack the state. That's what, you know, Babel and, and Wilhelm Leibnacht were trying to do at first by having parliamentary seats in the German Reichstag and just screaming at, about the Junker military apparatus. That's what they were attempting to do. I think I need to do an episode on Sinn Féin in, in Northern Ireland because they've they've done a, a strategy of patience and of abstaining from going into the British Parliament for over 100 years. And it's definitely worked for them. But they do enter into local positions of power, but nothing that's, say, to do with the British state. So it's interesting that we can see a very, not exactly the same theory or political strategy, but a similar one. And it's been highly effective. So th this is why I think what we've just talked about, what you just said there is about why he throws this weirdo 
kind of theoretical interlude in here into this yeah. this chapter. So he's like trying to to say that actually what we need as Marxists is a is a theory for understanding these transitions and what needs to be done to go from you know feudalism to capitalism or from what other ones have you got in here? You know, uh, he has antique state. He talks about China's antique state into uh, a feudal state or whatever. That much like we need to understand what is the theory of going from capitalism to communism. He's making the case it should be an all-encompassing theory. Now, whether that's possible or not, different organizational or social structures might require different understandings of what is needed to break each one. But I think the point he's trying to make overall is that Engels and Marx didn't fully theorize that break. And they kind of fell for this idea of parliamentarism being a, an avenue. While it, to contrast that with what, say, Marx and Engels wrote on uh, in England's 17th century revolution. Let's read just this little bit here. Although M. Guizot never loses sight of the French Revolution, he does not even reach the simple conclusion that the transition from an absolute to a constitutional monarchy can take place only after violent struggles and passing through a republican stage, and that even then the old dynasty, having become useless, must make way for a usurpatory sideline. Rosa, what do you make of this? Yeah, it makes sense because there's for him there's like no democratic mechanism to work through, so violence is the only real option in this situation for him i guess in the moment for the bourgeois revolutionaries would be to overthrow the absolute monarchy i guess it is kind of strange that he puts so much importance into the the political bourgeois political organizations well imagine it like you're in a situation where there's no real free speech or free organization and you know you see the labor movement in Europe is basically associated in the long term with the introduction of universal suffrage. That link doesn't really exist in the United States. We had a situation that was actually kind of more similar to Germany. I'm making a very rough analogy, uh, so bear with me, where a relatively you know, conservative figure made a populist move. I, I suppose it's hard to call a lot of people in American politics conservative, but the way history looks at Andrew Jackson, I'll just put it this way, due to his, his special role in genocide, it's not, it's not especially fond. But uh, universal manhood suffrage happened under Andrew Jackson. And there was a similar move in Germany under Bismarck. So there are countries that there are exceptions to this. But in a lot of Europe, and then to get women to vote, eventually, there was a huge socialist involvement in getting basic ass democratic rights that most people just associate with bourgeois governance now. So it's it's sort of understandable to me. If you imagine that the whole history of the socialist movement was trapped in the bourgeois epoch, well, they were still working out the kind of society that we're attacking today. So if Marx was naive about the nature of bourgeois democracy, is he also naive about the nature of the proletariat being emancipatory? If you take the kind of Kautskyan read of Marx, there's something very naive about it. Well, that the more capitalism there is, the more proletariat there are. And the more more proletarians that, that are made, the more disciplined and educated and skilled will become. There's definitely a naive reading in there. I don't know if that's Marx's. I think Marx is a bit more subtle on the issue of the proletariat and on mainly because he was a little more consistent with that. He, he never got to write his book on the state. You know, he uh, had a big old plan. I'm going to write a book on international state system and, and the bourgeois state and the finance markets. I'm going to write a book on. And he died before he could finish his book on capital. You know, I don't know what, you know, uh, 300 year old Marx would have would have worked out on the subject. Imagine his poor body B.O. at that stage. You know, oh, right. Imagine fucking carbuncles. Oh, yeah, imagine no. how big. Yeah. How big his open sores would have been after 300 years. Let's not let's not give that too much thought. I just want to give McNair a shout out for page 60 because he links a bunch of Marx texts. He links um, critique of Hegel's philosophy of right from like the 1840s. He links, you know, a speech from the 1850s. He links the civil war in France from the 1870s. 
He links Engels' critique in the 1890s. He talks about Marx's late work in the Ethnological Notebooks and even Engels' uh, Origin of the Family. And he, you know, in a, in a little more than a page, gives you the common core between all of Marx's and Engels' views on the state. I think that's just an accomplishment in itself. He is a very erudite young man, is Mr. McNair. Let's give him then a, a little bit of a chance to talk because we've been, we've been quoting Marx and Engels all over the goddamn place. Rosa, do you want to read this paragraph then? What is missing is a general theory which will explain why the absolute monarchies had to be smashed in order for fully capitalist states to emerge. In the process, which was completed in the Netherlands in 1609 and in England in 1688, but was not completed until 1871 in France and 1918, perhaps even 1945 in Germany. That's a bit weird. What What do you mean? Well, he, he says that the ab- absolute state in Germany wasn't fully eliminated until 1945. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think Nazi Germany is not absolutist. You know, it's it's a dictatorship, military dictatorship. But obviously it's modern, I guess. It's modern and bourgeois in its nature. Or maybe, I, I don't even know, actually. Maybe he's making the point that like post-1918 to even up to 1945, Germany was, well, if it was either, you know, a dictatorship or it was a highly dysfunctional bourgeois state, that it didn't really become functioning bourgeois until post-war. What, what I would read into that is that the what was called the German Revolution of 1918 didn't successfully end up smashing the Junker state and certain elements of that militarist apparatus rebuilt themselves into the Nazi state. But wasn't the Prussian Junker class like, hostile to hitler yeah so yeah i'm not really sure that i buy this either but that it's a parenthetical you know yeah the reason yeah, that someone just... would put that there is a it's sort of an althusserian thing where you you see the function re-established by other means even if it doesn't fit the historical narrative so i think that's probably a poor way to look at it too Right. Maybe he's like referring to the way in which like the German state was hoping to return to in least part to like some kind of pre-capitalist period of time in terms of like German agriculture, industry, and maybe even the state. I wouldn't read too much into that. Yeah, I did want to highlight something before it, though. The thing that is being answered by this general theory is this cash value of McNair's summing up of Marx and Engels, which is both in Marx's Civil War and France version and in Engels' Origins of the Family version, is that capitalism inherits the state from the prior social orders. It is then rational to suppose that socialism, either as the dictatorship of the proletariat or as the first phase of communism, will inherit the state from capitalism. This is sort of an alternative here, is trying to explain... So why did these absolute monarchies have to be smashed in order for a fully capitalist state to emerge? Then the next paragraph gets into, yeah, it's not going to be enough to have just that micro theory about just smashing the absolute monarchies. How come those late antique states had to be smashed in order for feudal states to emerge? Like in the uh, former Roman Empire, even though it never happened in uh, Byzantium. I guess the point being that He's trying to analogize between smashing the absolutist state and moving on to a bourgeois form of government and smashing the ancient state and moving on to the a feudal form of government. He's saying a theory here. Is he literally trying to make out that the theory should correctly be you have to smash the capitalist state? Is that his general point? The overall thrust, that, yeah. For every transition, there has to be a smashing of the organizational structures of the class in power from the class that's challenging. What I read into him, or what I think is there, what I think he's saying is that, yeah, the organization of the institution that they use for class rule has to be destroyed, and then the rising class builds a new type of organization that fits its own interests. This is what you might call the, quote, class character of something. And while 
that is abused in all the same way as that Marx's earlier theory or whatever, this flawed theory that we're looking at is abused. I think it's an important evolution in Marxist thought. Okay, t- taking that on board, Lexi, do you want to read the, the paragraph I've highlighted there? It would have to grasp the relation of concrete state forms, city, state, and God empire, national kingdom as part of larger religious unity, rule of law, constitutional state as part of a system of states to their class bases, slavery, feudalism, capitalism. In approaching the matter in this way, it would become visible that Engels' 1891 judgment that in France, the USA, and England, quote, the representatives of people concentrate all power in their hands, and if one has the support of the majority of the people, one can do as one sees fit in a constitutional way, was false. The inner secret of the capitalist state form is not bourgeois democracy. Rather, it has three elements. One, the rule of law, the judicial power. Two, the deficit finance of the state through organized financial markets. And three, the fact that capital rules not through a single state, but through an international state system of which each national state is merely a part. This is McNair's you know, theory of the state. So it's pretty simple. It's interesting here reading this about when I think about what's going on in Venezuela at the moment, because what Chavez did is he basically got the military in his country loyal to the socialist regime. And look how difficult it is for the Americans to flip the military. It should be something that as socialists, we, are, we should think about how you need to organize within your armed forces. Sorry, I know it's a bit of an aside, but it just jumped no, out no. to me when we read that. It's interesting, but it's very different in the way that, let's say, Lenin organized in the armed forces. The whole point of the soldier Soviets was to try to get internal support within the military to dismantle the czarist military, right? As opposed to in Venezuela. And I think this is part of the, the problem with a social democratic project. Trying yeah. to get the national, basically, you know, the, what you might, ha- I would, I, I, I'm forced to call it like a bourgeois state form. There's nothing about it that's especially crazy different than other modes of bourgeois administration. And, you know, trying to reconcile that to a socialist project when you have a big special body of armed men, this is a hard sell and perhaps even a contradiction in terms. Yeah, well, I probably should be more clear when I'm talking about Chavez. He was a social democrat. He wasn't like a, a communist. But it's just interesting to think about. That's all I would say there. Yeah. So this is this is him putting forward then his different theory. What do we make of it? Honestly, this is what jumps out at me when I look at historical materialism as a as an elaborated form. If I wasn't being confronted with Engels's later quotes, I would have thought that, you know, at least the beginning part was kind of Engels's theory. The actual criteria for bourgeois governance is clearly McNair's. But in reading this, I realize how much of this historical materialist look at the state across different societies and the theory of the class state having to smash the previous state, how much of that is an advance on Marx and Engels? I quite like the way he uses democracy. You know, he doesn't like to call it bourgeois democracy. I think there's something, in, in a way, it's kind of like calling, you know, the Stalin stuff communism. I don't really feel like that was true communism. I think it kind of hurts the debate by calling it that. Similarly, I don't think we gain all that much by buying into the idea that we live in democratic government proper. We live in some kind of liberal bourgeois regime, but it doesn't seem like we're, I don't know, maybe I'm being too naive, but we're not, it doesn't seem like there's a sincere effort to really get people, to get people to actually be engaged with government. It, this seems like a management you know, scenario. This is not a democratic scenario. Why does he leave out the armed forces in these three elements of the state? I suppose that the state is the armed forces, and this is the bourgeois version of it. Yeah, this is the variation on it. Like earlier, he says that all states are like based on like class rule. McNear does, not Marx, but you know what he's describing is merely the variation on said class rule. It should be said that using state in this limited way, I think I'm quoting Lenin by saying special bodies of armed men. It's seen as very vulgar and not very sophisticated by like critical theory Marx people. But I like it. 
Well, let, let me read. There's three paragraphs here. I think we should read them all because I think this is a really important bit in his book. You've got to understand the state's function to proper strategy. So let's read why he thinks SPD went wrong. This in turn carries the implication that Engels' 1891 critique of the SPD's failure in the Erfurt program to call for the Democratic Republic was true but insufficient. And that his 1895 claim that it was found that the state institutions in which the rule of the bourgeoisie is organized offered the working class still further levers to fight these very state institutions was misconceived. In the absence of an explicit democratic republican critique of the state hierarchy forming part of the SPD's agitation, the party's participation in the local and sectoral government organs of the German Second Empire served not to undermine the imperial state, but to integrate the workers' movement behind that state and to support the development of bureaucratic hierarchies within the workers' movement. The problem of failure to grasp the character of the nation-state system as part of an international state system and subject to the world market was one the centre shared with the right wing, these are the coalitionists, and was more profoundly disastrous than the failure to grasp the problem of the class character of state forms. It too has its origins in Marx and Engels. So he's burning Marx and Engels here. He's burning the SPD. He's burning, he's burning everything to the ground. This is why he kind of sounds like an autonomist, you know? He's like, look, they were all wrong about the way the state works. And actually, you can see a line from Marx to Engels to the bad parts of the SPD. It doesn't totally come out of nowhere. That's rough. And you know what? That's some good-ass ruthless critique. Loving it. I think I've actually said that before in like a previous podcast. I remember like maybe it was on Swamp Side, but I kind of actually remember saying that Marx was not particularly that great on like state theory and that like sort of the revisionism, the supposed revisionism of Karl Kotsky came from Marx and Engels wasn't so much revisionism as like a relative a partial selective reading now it does have still to remain like relatively accurate I, I just want to point out that i've never seen marx advocate for trying to use an element of the state against itself on the continent that is something that angles does that i don't think marx does and it is and it's because Honestly, Engels sees potential in the SPD day that Marx, I don't want to say he didn't live to see because he saw he saw some of it, but he was quite harsh. He was quite critical about these efforts and they tried to, you know, keep some of their harshest criticism private because they didn't want to hurt it. So we're we're ba we're back to the essentially the last major subsection in this chapter, which is the nation state. This is getting into the idea that the nation state is not an island and you've got to organize if you're a communist along an internationalist line. So to start off this section, he quotes the Communist Manifesto. Though not in substance, yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. That's a strong opening line. Good man, Marx. Where shall we go from here? Oh, I, I did want to chew on that for a second. There's two things going on there. There's a claim that the essence of the struggle for the proletariat is not national, right? But in form, it is. That's something that Marx retains throughout his whole life. However, the proletariat of each country must, of course, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie, first of all. I don't know if he ever abandons this position, but I think you can accept the former without accepting the latter. It might not be possible in the United States for us to, first of all, settle national matters, you know. <laughs> but I still think ultimately that it will be often national informed. It will be in contested elections. I, I'm doing a capital reading group at the moment and we're stuck right in the middle of our the first chapter, the commodity, and, you know, you have the different value form stuff going on. And, it, you know, it harkens back to that kind of uh, analysis 
So it's just interesting reading that paragraph again, having my head full stuck in like 20 yards of linen equals one coat. <laughs> yeah, he retains this like Aristotle language, you know, of form and essence. And you think, you know, he's looking at all these different sources of, from different nations. And if you read Marx and Engels, they love making jokes about national stereotypes. I don't even think they're jokes all the time. Like, I think they kind of believe in national characters. And so they recognize nations to be like a thing in their phenomenological world, but they feel like there's an underlying structural truth that transcends it. And so let's see. Indeed, previous bourgeois revolutionary movements had also been international. The Europe-wide commune movement of the 12th and 13th centuries, 16th through 17th century Protestantism, in particular Calvinism, and Enlightenment Republicanism of the 18th and early 19th centuries. Future, more proletarian revolutionary waves were also to be international in character, as in the rise of class struggles, which led up to the 1914 through 18 war. Those are the end and immediate aftermath of that war, the aftermath of 1945, and the late 1960s through early 1970s. So you're making a case for things have to be international. It's interesting reading, there's a, a book called Wolf Hall, and it's about okay. um, Thomas Cromwell. He was like an advisor to King Henry VIII and the Protestantism stuff going on and killing all his wives and stuff. And it's it's quite interesting, you know, about just reading that book, you know, about how international the Protestant movement was. They'd be smuggling texts in from, you know, Holland or Germany and people would be coming. And it's, it kind of read kind of like some kind of clandestine communist kind of shit from 1920 or something. It's interesting that he's making the claim that re revolutions kind of always work this way. It's not something special about the bourgeois epoch. He goes on here to say Marx was given out about the uh, the Gotha program, whereby he said there was not one mention of the international function of the working class, which is kind of telling. It seems to be a repeated thing. Engels has a critique of Babel to the same degree. Mm. Did any of you see that clip of the journalist Max Blumenthal? He does that kind of foreign policy stuff. He got like a one second or like 10 second interview with AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, Ocasio. Yeah. And he said, like, hey, what was your thoughts on like the coup that's going on now in, in Venezuela, the attempted coup? And you could see she was like, oh, sorry, I'm in a rush. I got to go. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. like, you know, look at what Bernie and all of these social Democrat types say. They don't give a damn about empire. You see, they well, hardly even mention it. Just and it's 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 this being rewritten. It's this exact tendency. I think we discussed it already for, in maybe one of the previous chapters about how you know you can't talk about empire. You want to use that to fund your stuff, and it shows it in, in you know in today's people think oh this is all very high level shit. But in today's like when AOC is asked a simple question about what's going on in Venezuela, she can't answer it for this type of reason, which is why I'm not all that jazzed or excited about you know the new wave of socialists and you know or whatever because well, none of them actually, are doing what the earliest SPD people were doing actually like, in a live stream that she did while cooking she made a very brave brave stand in supporting the venezuelan people and saying that the is real issue was not ideological but rather authoritarianism versus democracy there you go. Very nice. Very nice. So we can just put all this other considerations aside. You know, that's that's just the thing. Until our socialists, you know, that people are screaming, oh, my God, the socialists are coming. Until our socialists can give a more powerful condemnation than fucking, you know, Rand Paul on the floor of Congress, I'm not lifting a finger. Well, to be fair, uh, that Omar, Omar, I can't say her name. The one Muslim senator who like identifies as an intersectional feminist rather than a socialist is the only one that seems to be like really standing up in public and saying, no, th this, this is a coup. The opposition leader is like right wing and we shouldn't be doing this intervention thing. Like she's yeah, like Ilan, the only Ilan one Ilan doing it. And she doesn't even identify as a socialist at Full all. Full firing squads for her for, by the DC commentariat as well. 
that's why Ocasio Cortez gets all the attention she does largely, I think. She knows the game, but they can put up with somebody who just wants a bit of healthcare, but they can't get up, put up with somebody who's anti imperialist. The difference in treatment that uh, Miliband gets compared to Jeremy Corbyn, you know, you can't touch the empire. I don't want to like overstate the level of that Jeremy Corbyn is a revolutionary because, you know, he gets the same kind of inflated threat treatment that AOC and Bernie does. But because the British state is less embedded in the world order, there is more room for somebody like him to critique empire and, you know, military apparatus. And Jeremy Corbyn is probably the most anti-imperialist major party leader in British history. Without doubt. In Western political history? I wonder. There, you know, there may be exceptions here and there. I can't think of Amer- American presidents, which are more opposed. Like in modern, in, in modern Western European political history, I don't think there's ever been like, like the number one or two party leader who was an anti-imperialist. I certainly can never remember it. It's definitely hard for me to think of one. Actually, was there a Swedish guy in the late in the early eighties, and then was he assassinated? There might have been Emmanuel of Manuel's here. He might be able to tell us. See, yeah, that's why I'm hesitant to say and just sweep whatever you know heroes lost to history or under the rug. But needless to say, that in order to play ball in the United States, you have to basically embrace empire. And until we get a lot of electoral efforts to the contrary, there's you know really nothing to be too jazzed about in the legislature. Yeah, so he goes on to talk about how Engels said, oh, Germany should be able to defend itself against attack. The German workers should not help in any imperial war. At the end of all of this, we get to this paragraph at the end. With this, we have arrived at the position which the SPD took up in August 1914. That is, in fact, dictated by the inner logic of the combination of all claims that the proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters within its own bourgeoisie, and that the nation-state is an evil inherited by the proletariat after its victorious struggle for class supremacy. In August 1914, these comments left the center badly embashed in the defense of national interests as the right and led them to support feeding the European workers into the mincing machine of the war. Is that fair on Kautsky, do people think? Uh, well, Kautsky basically sat on his hands during the actual vote for, like, war credits. Basically, he sat on his hands and didn't really vote. Bernstein initially voted for, for war credits, but then immediately regretted the decision and started to oppose the war, which is kind of weird because that doesn't get really brought up in most left analysis of the Second International. Did they did they not argue it strongly? Is that the general gist? They basically took up a defensive position that Germany was being threatened by an absolutist state in the form of Russia, and uh, Germany was more progressive in its state's character. Therefore, they needed to defend Germany which is sort of opportunistic theoretical line. But if you go back to Marx and Engels, you can sort of justify it based off of like a few quotes. You have to fudge it. But yeah, Engels was speaking of a defensive war and any modern war is usually fought in the name of defense. But I think what Engels was trying to say was not in that opportunistic vein. I think he was really thinking of an invasion. I, I would think something along the lines of a genocide would probably be an example of something that could come close to something that would be a legitimate defenseless war. Like, for example, uh, Germany going into the Soviet Union and basically murdering, trying to genocide the Slavic people or the Native Americans, Native people of the North America struggling against the encroachment of colonists from Europe would probably be another example of what would be a legitimate or what could be a legitimate basis for like making the claim that this is a truly defensive war. But then again, those situations, only one of those situations really involves a proletariat and there's different rationales that you can use for justifying the Soviet Union's defense war. I think in general, there's a difference yeah, between like a defensive war and an offensive war. And clearly they're abusing 
Engels' statements on defensive war for an offensive war. So he's basically saying that because they weren't international enough, that's what happened. That's his logic. Because they didn't understand the the bourgeois order has this place for the international state system. It's kind of a bit of jargon that he likes to use. But yeah, in so many words, not internationalist enough. Before I think I, I uh, hinted that the Germans invaded the Russians first in World War One. that's not true. The Russians invaded first, and what Rosa was saying is is perfectly fine. So let's move on to this last little bit. This is the last bit of the argument where he goes on to talk about the dialectic. We all love our dialectics. It is a commonplace of the far left following hints from Lenin, elaborated by Lukash and others, to accuse Kautsky in particular and the, and the center in general of an insufficient grasp of dialectic. I have argued against this approach before. In particular, it is clear that Kautsky and his immediate coal thinkers did not imagine an uninterrupted social peace, which would allow the SPD to progress without crises and setbacks, and that they did grasp that history moves both in a slow molecular fashion and in an accelerated and chaotic fashion in periods of crisis. Okay, so he's kind of get to this idea that Kautsky and them thought, well, this would be a setback, but you know, it's not going to be like the be all and end all and totally destroy our party, which it kind of did. And then this last sentence of the final paragraph of the chapter is very good. However, because it addressed neither the state form, so this is the general approach of this chapter, what we're talking about, the revolutionary strategy of the center. So he's going to critique it. This is his, basically his critique of the, the, the strategy of the center pursued by Kautsky and these guys. However, because it addressed neither the state form, so also it's a critique of Marx and Engels. It's a critique of Marx and Engels and Kautsky. However, because it addressed neither the state form nor the international character of the capitalist state system and the tasks of the workers' movement, the center's strategy collapsed into the policy of the right when matters came to the crunch. What do people think on that? I think that's a fair assessment. And I think that's a lot of what McNair gets from Lenin and the Bolsheviks and the Third International amounts to this, that there's a broader world system that they're not taking into account. There's something about the character of bourgeois government that the Marx, Engels, Kautsky tradition, whatever gaps there is between Engels and Kautsky, there's a few things that they don't adequately capture. You know, we actually get a better understanding by at least paying attention to the negative critiques of you know Lenin and the Bolsheviks against the Second International, even if they don't present us with a fully worked out positive replacement. I think this chapter is excellent. I think this chapter is fantastic, as in, you know, it gives us what's good about the strategy of patients and the center strategy, but he also takes the knife to it. You know, so I, I think it's it's excellent. Do we have any overall thoughts on it now that we've come to the end of it before we wrap up? It's a pretty sober synthesis of thoughts about the state in between the second and third internationals. The next chapter is about war. And so we'll really get to dig into the issues we were talking about before with offensive and defensive war, with you know what Marx and Engels thought about war and conflict under what conditions Marx and Engels suggested supporting your country's, you know, military. That gets tremendously complicated. And it is sort of rightfully one of those positions that Marxists get knocked for, not taking maybe seriously enough either way. I think this section sort of like lays out what what would be the difference between, you know, sort of Kautskyanism, Orthodox Marxism, and what is often labeled as Neo-Kautskyanism major difference is that well the strategy of mass buildup of working class institutions in the mass party is maintained and built upon the critiques of imperialism that lenin put forward and the critiques of the state that mcnair puts forward is internalized and used to like improve upon the already existing strategy and avoid the sort of like opportunism of the second international that comes from their lackluster understanding of the state and of imperialism.
on this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>